0: Today we're going to be reading the next chapter of Gilly Hopkins. But before we get started, last time I asked you, why is Gilly Hopkins so afraid of being loved? There are many people in her life who are trying to show her that they care, but she won't let them. Why? Here's what you all had to say. So Gilly won't let anyone make her go soft because she doesn't she wants to see her mom. If she goes soft then she might stay forever on accident and she'll just be like a soft lovely child forever and that's what she doesn't want because last time she went soft she what happened is she she was she was cuddling up on the Dixon's laps and it was like she even called her mama and then they just moved to Florida and left her back with all the other stuff that was trash. Gilly cannot let herself go soft until she's with her real mother. Uh, because uh, she does not want uh, her like real mother. She does not want to be stuck with Trotter, thinking that Trotter is her real mother. And uh, never going back to her real mother. Because... Uh, so she wants to see uh, what's called, her real mother, and she does not want to get caught up with uh, hippo. So, and and she's trying to do the destiny to go and earn money, but uh, Mister Randolph doesn't have any more money. So, like, I don't know. I think I think that she's saying it just so she does not get caught up with Trotter. Hi, this is Sabrina, and I think that Gilly doesn't want to be appreciated because I feel like if she's appreciated and loved, she's going to be like, oh, well, this place isn't actually, like, that bad. But inside, she knows that where she wants to be is with her mom and not with Trotter and William Ernest and Randolph and her teacher and her big friend, I guess. She wants to be with her mom. But I actually think that at the end of the chapter, she's not going to end up going to her mom. Because if she didn't find any more money and she needs like $136, like, I don't actually think she's going to make it there. And she's just going to be like, okay, yo, whatever. I'm going to stay here. Whatever. Bye. And that was Sabrina. I think Gilly doesn't want to be loved because she was already in other foster homes. And she was loved, because she said that in one of them, she um, she really loved her family, and they really loved her. But then she wasn't there anymore. They they um, threw her out. So I think she doesn't want people to love her, and she doesn't want her to love people. She doesn't want to love her foster parents, because... She's afraid that they'll kick her out too, and she doesn't want to feel like she did when they kicked um, her out of um, of the other family that she was with because that felt super bad, and she doesn't want to feel it again. I think Gilly doesn't want people to like her because she, does, she knows that maybe she's a little afraid of, like, keep on going to different foster homes. I know, like, she, like... It, She makes people think that she's not afraid and she's very smart. but Maybe there's some feelings inside of her that, like, I don't want to keep on moving. I want to be with my mom. Well, I know she wants to be with her mom. And she doesn't want someone to love her except for her mom because her mom is her mom. Nothing can change that. I think that Kelly doesn't want to be loved because if she's loved, then she might go all soft and stupid and she thinks that she'll be a fool. And she said that her old foster parents were very nice to her and treated her like they were her own daughter. And she thinks that if that happens with the trotters, then she'll be all soft and stupid like she was when with her old foster parents. The Great Gilly Hopkins, Chapter 8, The One-Way Ticket Not everything in the letter to Courtney had been absolutely true, but surely the part about Trotter being a religious fanatic was she read the Bible and prayed every day, always joining Mr. Randolph's grace over the food. Besides, anybody who started for church at 9 in the morning on Sunday and didn't get home until after 12.30 had to be peculiar. Sunday mornings were torture to Gilly. The church was a strange little white frame building stuck up on a hill behind the police station, built when the city was a country town instead of part of the metropolitan Washington spraw- sprawl. The church didn't fit in the modern world any more than the people who went there did. The children's Sunday school class, in which both Gilly and W.E. were lumped with the five other 6- to 12-year-olds in the church, was presided over by an ancient Miss Minnie Applegate who reminded her seven charges every Sunday that she had been saved by Billy Sunday. Who in the hell was Billy Sunday? He sounded like a character from the comics. Billy Sunday, meet Brenda Starr. Also, Miss Applegate neglected to say what Billy Sunday had saved her from. A burning building? The path of a speeding locomotive? Or indeed, having been so luckily preserved, what good had her pickling accomplished for either herself or the world? Old Applegate would do things like lecture them on the Ten Commandments and then steadfastly refuse to explain what adultery was. But Miss Applegate, an eight-year-old had sensibly asked, if we don't know what adultery is, how can we know if we're doing it or not? Gilly, of course, knew all about adultery. In whispered conversations between Sunday school and church, she offered for sale not only the definition of the word, but some juicy neighborhood examples which had lately come to her attention thanks to Agnes Stokes. In this way, she gained 78 cents in coins, previously designated for the church collection plate. The preacher was as young as the Sunday school teacher was old. He, too, was high on getting saved and other matters of eternal preservation. But his grammar was worse than Trotter's, and to Gilly's disgust, he'd stumble over words of more than one syllable whenever he read the Bible. Nobody put a religious fanatic would put up with such gross ignorance for over an hour every week of their lives. Nobody but religious fanatics and the innocent victims they forced to go to church. Unlike some of the women, Trotter didn't carry on over the preacher at the church door, which made Gilly bold enough to ask her once, How can you stand him? It was the wrong question. Trotter sucked in her breath and glowered down at her like Moses at the Israelites' golden calf. Who am I, she thundered, to pass judgment on the Lord's anointed? Would anybody but a fanatic say a thing like that? Mr. Randolph went to the Black Baptist Church. The same taxi that took Trotter and the children to the White Baptist Church dropped him off on the way and picked him up on the way home. Gilly noted that the Black Baptists dressed fancier and smiled more than the whites. But their services lasted even longer, and often W.E. would have to run in and get the old man out of his service while the taxi meter impatiently ticked away. It was usually past two by the time they got out of their Sunday clothes, cooked dinner, and finally sat down to their long, lazy meal. The Sunday after the futile dusting, Mr. Randolph surprised everyone by refusing seconds. "'Oh, you must know, Mrs. Trotter, "'how it pains me to say no to this exquisite chicken. "'But my son is coming over about three. "'At the word son, something clanked inside Gilly's chest. "'Suppose the son noticed that something was funny "'in Mr. Randolph's living room, "'the chair on the opposite side, the books rearranged. "'Suppose he knew where the money should have been. "'Oh, you got time for a piece of pie now, "'don't you, Mr. Randolph? "'It's cherry today!' "'Cherry, my, my!' Mr. Randolph held his bony thumb and index finger an inch apart. "'About so much, all right. I'm helpless before your cherry pies, Mrs. Trotter. Totally helpless!' He was chewing the pie blissfully when suddenly he stopped. "'Oh, my! Have I got any spots on my clothes? My son gets so upset!' Trotter put her fork down and studied him. "'You look good, Mr. Randolph. Only just a little something on your tie.' Oh, mercy, mercy. The boy is always looking for some excuse to say I can't take care of myself so he can drag me over to his big house in Virginia. He dipped his napkin into the water glass and tried to dab his tie, completely missing the offending spots. Oh, shoot, Mr. Randolph, let me get you one of Melvin's old ties to wear. I don't know why I still got so much of his stuff around anyhow. She sniffed as if to clear away a memory of the late Mr. Trotter. Gilly, run up to my room and look in the back of the closet, will you? There's a dozen or more on the coat hanger. Before Gilly got out the door, she added, Just pick a nice one, here. Not one of those real loud ones. She turned half apologetically to Mr. Randolph. Sometimes in those last years, if Melvin was feeling low, he'd go out and buy some wild tie and wear it every day for a week. She shook her head. I guess I should praise the Lord it wasn't some wild woman he was hanging round his neck. Mr. Randolph giggled. Why don't you bring me a wild one, Miss Gilly? I need to wake up that 50-year-old senior citizen I've got for a son. Trotter threw back her massive head and belly laughed. You're some kind of man, Mr. Randolph. Well, you're some kind of lady. Gilly fled up the stairs. These scenes between Trotter and Mr. Randolph made her insides curl. It was weird to see old people carry on. Old people who weren't even the same color. But it was not that silly little flirtation that was bothering her. It was a vision of Mr. Randolph's prissy, 50-year-old son poking around his father's living room. So when she saw Trotter's port purse with its no-good fastener lying wide open on the bed, inviting her, practically demanding her to look in, she did so. Good God! Trotter must have just cashed her chunk from county welfare. Gilly did a quick count. At least a hundred! Another hundred would get her all the way to California, all the way to Courtney Rutherford Hopkins, all the way home. She stuffed the money in her pocket, went to the closet, and found the hanger full of Melvin's madness. She chose the gaudiest one, four-inch high ballet dancers in purple tutus, their pink leads pure on a greenest forehand. She tiptoed to her own room, slipped the fat wad of bills in her drawer under her T-shirts, and tiptoed back to Trotter's door. Once there, she slammed her feet down noisily and descended the stairs. Oh, my sweet baby, what have you done? Gilly's blood went cold. How could Trotter know? That tie! It's the worst crime Melvin ever committed. Rest his precious soul. Oh, good, good. Mr. Randolph was standing up, rubbing his wrinkled hands together in excitement. Tell me about it. You better not take this one, Mr. Randolph. It's got all these fat women from per- jumping around. Really, the little brown face beam. Are they decent? Well, they ain't naked, but they might as well be a little purple flim-flams. prompted Gilly Primly, gratefully recovering from her earlier shock. What? asked Trotter. Two-twos, they're wearing tutus. Trotter roared. Ain't that perfect? Two-twos, too skimpy for words. Mr. Randolph was already taking off his spotted black tie to make room for Melvin's dancing ladies. You sure now, Mr. Randolph? I don't want your son thinking on some kind of wicked influence on his good Baptist father. Gilly began to wonder if poor Mr. Randolph was going to choke on his own giggles. He doesn't even need to know where the tie came from. I give you my solemn word. This from a man hysterical with laughter. Jeez. Trotter nodded the tie for him with the kind of assured expertise born of knotting one man's tie for more than a quarter of a century. She stepped back to appraise the effect. Well, what do you think, Gilly Honey? That do something good for Mr. Randolph? It's okay. Okay, we gotta do better than that. How about you, William Ernest Honey, how do you like Mr. Randolph's new tie? It's beautiful, the boy whispered reverently. See, well, Trotter was immediately sober. William Ernest approves. Good, good, said Mr. Randolph, his dignity also once again intact. Would you walk me back to my house then, son? The boy slid out of his chair and took the old man's hand. See you tomorrow here, Trotter said. Thank you, yes, thank you, and you too, Miss Gilly, see you tomorrow. Yeah, okay, said Gilly, though by this time tomorrow, she figured she'd be in Missouri at the very least. She dried the dishes as Trotter washed them and put them to drain, her mind aboard the Greyhound bus skimming across something that looked like a three-dimensional version of the topographical map in her geography book. Trotter beside her was chuckling again over Mr. Randolph sporting Melvin's dancing ladies. His son's this big lawyer. Lawyer? Over in Virginia! I'd give him a pretty penny to see his face when he gets a load of that time. Mercy on us, wouldn't I ever? After they finished cleaning up in the kitchen, Trotter went into the living room and stretched out on the couch. Her one trip upstairs on Sundays was to change out of her good dress so she'd be on the couch the rest of the day, napping or laboriously reading the Sunday paper. W.E., back from next door, turned on the TV and lay down on the rug to watch an old movie. Now was the time. Gilly started for the stairs. You want to join us, honey? There's a football game on Channel 9 unless W.E. cares about this movie. W.E. got up, obediently ready to switch channels. No, Gilly said. Not right now. I got things to do. Well, okay, honey. If she was going to go, she would have to leave now. By tonight, Trotter would go upstairs and find the money gone. And nothing was sure about what might happen with Mr. Randolph's lawyer son next door. She packed quickly, although her hands shook. The first thing was to gather all the money together and put it into her pocket. It made a lump as big as an orange. Too bad she'd thrown away that silly shoulder bag Mrs. Nevins has bought her last Christmas. Her jacket? First thing next week we're going to have to buy you a good warm one, Trotter had said. She had been waiting for the support check. Her jacket was hanging by the front door downstairs, past the open living room door. Trotter was probably asleep and if Gilly was very quiet, perhaps W.E. wouldn't hear. She crept down, keeping her suitcase under her right arm to conceal it as best she could with her body. Crossing the short, bright strip before the door, she glanced in. Neither head turned. She was safely to the front door. She took her jacket off the hook and poked it above the suitcase so that she had a free hand for the knob. Where are you going? She jumped around at W.E.'s whisper. In the dark hallway, his glasses flashed. Just out, she whispered back. Oh God, make him shut up. He did shut up and stood silently, looking first at her, then at the suitcase, and then back at her. Don't go. His little face squeezed up at her like his tiny voice. I got to, she said through her teeth, opening the door, pulling it shut behind her shifting the suitcase and jacket to either hand and running, running, running down the hill, the pulse in her forehead pounding as hard as her sneakered feet pounding the sidewalk. Once around the corner, she slowed down. Someone might notice her if they saw her running. No bus came by. There were hardly any on Sundays. She settled herself at once to walk the mile or so to the bus station, stopping to put on her thin jacket against the November wind. The bus would be heated, she reminded herself, and in California, the sun always shines. It was dusk by the time she got to the bus station. She went straight to the ladies' room and combed her hair and tucked her shirt into her jeans. She tried to tell herself that she looked much older than 11. She was tall, but totally bustless. Hell, she zipped up her jacket, stood up straight, and went out to the ticket counter. The man didn't even look up. I want a ticket to California, please. As soon as the words were out, she heard her mistake. California, where? He glanced up now, looking at her th- through half-open lids. Um, San Francisco, San Francisco, California. One way or round trip, whatever happened, a lady cool. One, one way. He punched some buttons, and a ticket magically emerged. One thirty-six-sixty, including tax. She had it. She had enough. With trembling hands, she took the wad of bills from her pocket and began to count it out. The man watched lazily. Your mother know where you are, kid? Come on, Gilly, you can't fall apart now. She pulled herself straight and directed into his sleepy eyes the look she usually reserved for teachers and principals. I'm going to see my mother. She lives in San Francisco. Okay he said, taking her money and recounting it before he handed her the ticket. Bus leaves at 8.30. 8.30? Yeah, want to check your bag? It's only 4.30 now. That's right. That's four hours from now. Right again. But I want to leave as soon as I can. Look, kid, you came in here and asked me for a ticket. I gave you one on the next bus he sighed. Okay, he said and consulted his book. You can take the five o'clock into Washington and catch a 622 out of there. He stuck out his hand. I'll have to fix you another ticket. She gave it back. It'll take me a while, he said. I gotta check the routing. He nodded to the seats across the waiting room. Just sit down over there. I'll call you. She hesitated, then reluctantly obeyed. She didn't like the idea of leaving both the money and the ticket there, but she was afraid he'd ask more questions if she protested. He was at it a long time. He was on the phone for a while, talking in a muffled voice. Then he was pouring through his books. Once, he got up and went into the baggage room and stayed away for several minutes. It was almost 4.45. If he didn't hurry, she might miss the 5 o'clock bus. She got up and got a drink from the water cooler. The water was warm, and somebody had dropped a piece of gum on the drain. She went back to the red plastic seat, still thirsty. The clock said 4.48 when the clerk came back and sat down without even looking her way. My ticket? But just then, a man and woman came in, and the clerk got busy with them. It wasn't fair. She'd been there waiting since 4.30. Gilly stood up and started for the counter. She didn't even see the policeman until she felt his hand on her arm. Gilly snatched her arm back as she looked to see who had touched her. Where you headed, little girl? He spoke quietly as though not to disturb anyone. To see my mother, said Gilly tightly. Oh God, make him go away. All the way to San Francisco by yourself? She knew then that the clerk had called him. Damn! Yes I see, he said, with a quick look at the clerk, who was now staring at them with both eyes well open. I haven't done anything wrong. Nobody's charging you with anything, the policeman pulled his cap straight and said in a very careful, very patient voice. Who you been staying with here in the area? She didn't have to answer him. It was none of the business. Look, somebody's going to be worried about you like hell. He cleared his throat. What about giving me your telephone number so I can just check things out? She glared at him. He coughed and cleared his throat again and looked up at the clerk. She might have gotten away in that instant, except for the money. Where could she go without the money? I think, the policeman was saying, I'd better take her in for a little talk. The clerk nodded. He seemed to be enjoying himself. Here's the money she brought in. He held up a manila envelope. The policeman took her gently by the arm and walked her to the counter. The clerk handed him the envelope. That's my money, Gilly protested. I'll just bet it is, kid, the clerk said with a fake smile. If she had known what to do, she would have done it. She tried to make her brain tell her, but it lay frozen in her skull like a woolly mammoth deep in a glacier. All the way to the station, she asked it, shall I jump out of the car at the next light and run? Should I just forget about the damn money? But the woolly mammoth leapt on, refusing to stir a limb in her behalf. In a back room behind the police station's long counter, two policemen tried to question her. The new one, a big blonde, was asking the first one, she ain't got no ID? Well, I'm not going to search her and Judy's gone out to get her supper. What about the suitcase? Yeah, better check through there. She wanted to yell at them to leave her stuff alone, but she couldn't break through the ice. The blonde policeman rifled carelessly through her clothes. He found Courtney's picture almost at once. This your mother, kid. Put that down, she whispered. Oh, now she's talking. She said to put her picture down, Mitchell. Okay, okay, just trying to do my job. He put the picture down and continued to poke through the suitcase. Bingo, he said, picking up the postcard. He read it carefully before handing it to the other officer. All will Ryan name and current address, and big surprise, she does know somebody in San Francisco. The one called Ryan read the postcard and then came and stooped down beside her chair. Is this your father's address here? He asked, pointing at the address on the card. She sat perfectly still, staring him down. Ryan shook his head, stood up, and handed the car back to Mitchell. Check out who lives at that address and give him a call, will you? Within half an hour, a red-faced trotter, holding the hand of a white-faced William Ernest, puffed through the station house door. Her eye immediately caught Gilly's, still seated in the room on the other side of the counter. She tried to smile, but Gilly jerked away from the gaze. The policewoman was back from her supper and on duty at the counter. "'Mamie, Mamie Trotter!' Trotter was puffing worse than if she'd run up her steps. "'Got a taxi, waiting, no money, to pay him.'" "'Just a minute, please.'" Judy, the policewoman, came in and spoke quietly to Ryan, and then Ryan got up and they both went out to the counter. The only part of the conversation Gilly could make out was Trotter's breathy replies. Foster child, yes, somewhere.'" San Francisco, yes, maybe so. County Social Services, uh, Ms. Miriam Ellis, yes, yes, no, no, no. Can someone pay the taxi cab still waiting out there? Officer Ryan gave Trotter the yellow envelope. She sighed and nodded, taking out some money which she handed to him. He handed it to Mitchell, who handed it to the policewoman, who frowned but went out anyway to pay the cab driver. No, no, Trotter was saying. Of course not. She's just a baby. Trotter was still shaking her head at Ryan as he brought her back around the counter, W.E. clutching at her shabby coat. Trotter's Beth had returned, and her voice shook as she spoke to Gilly from the doorway. I come to take you home, Gilly, honey. Me and William Ernest come up to get you. Ryan came all the way in and stooped down again beside her. Mrs. Trotter is not going to press charges. She wants you to come back. Press charges? Oh, the money. Did the stupid man think that Trotter would have her arrested? But how could she go back? Gilly the Great, who couldn't even run away, botched the job. She stared at her fingers. The nails were grubby. She hated grubby fingernails. Gilly, honey. Don't you want to go home? Ryan was asking, wanna go home? Don't I wanna go home? Where in the hell do you think I was headed? When she didn't answer him, Ryan stood up. Maybe we should keep her tonight and call social services in the morning. You mean to lock the child up? She'd be safe, it would just be overnight. You don't think for one minute I'm gonna let you lock a child of mine up in jail. Maybe it would be best, Ryan said quietly. Best? What do you mean? What are you trying to say? She doesn't really seem to want to go with you, Mrs. Trotter. Now I don't know. Oh, my dear Lord, you don't. Oh, my dear Lord. It was the closest to cursing Gilly had ever heard Trotter come to. She looked up in the fat, stricken face. Oh, my dear Lord, what do I do? Gilly! Gilly! William Ernest streaked across the room and began to beat his fists on her knees. Come home, Gilly! Please come home! Please, please! The blood vessels stood out blue and strained on his white neck. The ice in her frozen brain rumbled and cracked. She stood up and took his hand. Thank you, precious Jesus, Trotter said. Ryan cleared her throat. You don't have to go unless you want to, you know that, don't you? Gilly nodded. Trotter in the doorway lifted her arms, the brown purse dangling from one of them. The faulty clasp flew open as she did so. She dropped her arms, embarrassed, and forced the purse shut. I need another taxi officer. I'll get Mitchell to drive you, he said. Okay, wow. That was a lot that just happened in that chapter. Gilly got the money. She stole it from Mrs. Trotter and Mr. Randolph. She tried to get a bus ticket. She almost got it, but was caught and ended up going back home. But I want you to think back to the very beginning of the chapter. At the beginning, Gilly's talking about her experience at church, and the author... Catherine Patterson takes the time to explain that there's a white church that Gilly, W.E., and Mrs. Trotter go to and a black church that Mr. Randolph goes to. Why do you think that the author, Catherine Patterson, took the time to describe these two things? Why was it important that the author include that detail in the book? Leave a voice message and tell us what you think.